you this morning, and we're going to um, pick up where we left off last Sunday morning. We're going to try to make it through the last half of uh, our Articles of Faith uh, this morning. We may move that into this afternoon, depending on the time that we make. Um, so one of the one of the questions, or one of the things that may come to mind as you think about Articles of Faith and um, you know, why do we have these articles of faith? Why do we have something like a, a church covenant? Why is it that we don't just say, well, what we believe is we believe the Bible and, and uh, leave it at that? And the answer for that is because a lot of people say what we believe is the Bible. And a lot of people come to a lot of different conclusions about what they think the Bible says. So when we're thinking about the articles of faith in the church covenant, we're talking about two documents that really our unity as a church is going to be based on. One of the questions might be, why be, you know, so on this street within walking distance, there are at least three churches that I know of. Why go to Ripley instead of one of the other two? Um, what, what, what would be the reason for that? And I would say that the Articles of Faith would be the reason. The Articles of Faith is just, is just uh, giving you a nutshell of these are the biblical truths that we stand on, that we hold to, and this is what our unity is based around. We believe these realities, and you can expect that as we um, preach the Word, that this is what you're going to be hearing. So um, conviction is really what we're talking about. These are the biblical convictions that we hold to, that we, we say that, um, that these are non-negotiables. Our, our fellowship is, um, is around our adherence to um, Truth articulated as represented here. Doesn't mean we're saying this is everything the Bible has to say about everything, or even that these articles of faith are everything that the Bible has to say about any given topic. So we started out with the Trinity last time, and I didn't get anywhere close to scratching the surface of what all the Bible has to say about the Trinity. I gave you a nutshell of what Scripture had to say about the doctrine of the Trinity and the distinctives uh, that we uh, would say are biblical as it relates to that doctrine and, and so forth and so on. So um, as the same way we did it last time, we're working through uh, six of these. And so we're trying to distill what is the essence of each of these points of doctrine that uh, is laid out in the, in the Articles of Faith. So we'll start with number seven. Start with number seven, and just in a, again, a succinct statement. Number seven is we believe in sanctification and perseverance. We believe in sanctification and perseverance. We're talking about some theological words here. Sanctification, uh, it just means to be set apart. Um, it's set apart for a specific purpose. And that purpose is that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So the, the, uh, we have been set apart and the Spirit is working uh, in us to purify, to make us holy. The word sanctification is very close to the word saint. Um, the saints that are in Ephesus or wherever. Uh, and again, it's a, it's a people who have been set apart. Uh, it's very similar to the word holy. So sanctification has really two parts. Um, we could think about positional sanctification. All that means is you have been covered in the righteousness of Christ. And whenever God looks at you, He sees you and the worship you bring and, and everything else about you through the shed blood of Jesus Christ as if you had never sinned and as if you had always done what was right. Okay, that's positional. In Christ, that's where you are. But there's also 
what we would call practical sanctification. And that means that sanctification isn't just theoretical. It means that the Holy Spirit is in you and God is doing what Jesus prayed for in John 17, 17, when he prayed that 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 God would sanctify his people through the truth. His word is truth. And that just simply means that he's he's using the truth to um, to grow you into the image and character of Jesus Christ to make you more Christ like. So that's sanctification. We'll look at some more uh, passages there in just a minute. The other word that's used is, is perseverance. And we believe in the perseverance of the saints. Okay, the word to perseverance just means to endure. Um, there has been a long time debate on What's the uh, what's the accurate word to use? Do the saints um, persevere in grace, or are they preserved uh, by grace? Which one is it? Which one should we would use? Do they endure, or are they kept or guarded? And uh, and the answer is both. Um, the reason anyone ever perseveres uh, to the end, the reason anyone ever endures is because they have been preserved or kept by the power uh, of God through faith. So um, there are times where you hear that. It's been a while since I've heard that come up, but that used to be a regular conversation. Uh, Which one is it? And I really think it's helpful to understand that perseverance and preservation, theologically, those fall under the category of sanctification. Okay, this is a work that the Spirit is doing in the life of every believer. It's also a work that you're participating in. And so it's something that, that continues on. So we believe in sanctification and uh, perseverance. So we said sanctification is being set apart for a specific purpose that's being conformed to the image of Christ. Uh, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Verses 12 and 13 says, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have also, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. We have the uh, both sides of the coin here of sanctification. In verse 12, we are called to obey or to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. This is something that you're doing. It's something that you're involved in. It's something that you're active in. And then Paul goes on in verse 13 to say, for or because it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. That is, you're working out what God has worked in. Okay, God has worked in you the desire and the ability to do His good will. And that hasn't made you a robot. It also hasn't uh, simply put you in some sort of an invisible category that says, uh, you know, despite um, uh, any sort of evidence on your part, uh, you have a get-out-of-jail-free get card that will work in eternity. Uh, sometimes this whole debate about do we persevere or do we, uh, are we preserved, uh, that's been uh, based on, I think, a misunderstanding and, a, and either a misapplication or an ignoring of a passage like Philippians chapter 2, 12-13. We believe that Scripture teaches clearly, John 15, uh, 5, without Christ you can do Nothing. So we don't do anything in our own strength. But we also believe, 1 Peter chapter 1, that we are kept by the power of God through faith. Okay? And in that, uh, that guarding or that faith, that faith is what we'll look at in a second, what overcomes the world. It's an active faith. So we work out 
what God has worked in. Also in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Speaking about sanctification and growth. It's a common phrase theologically is a progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. It just means that it's a process. It means it doesn't all happen at once. That's what we see here in 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. You may remember in the past, as we've talked about this passage, it could be translated, we're changed into the same image from one degree of glory to another degree of glory. Incremental change. Okay? Progressively. You're being progressively changed one increment at a time into the image of Jesus Christ. So that's sanctification. Okay? You're set apart for a purpose and God is bringing about that purpose in your life. Now, perseverance falls just under that umbrella, and it just simply means that you're going to endure in that. Okay, If you've been the recipient of the Spirit of God, if the Holy Spirit has come to permanently indwell you and your heart, that's not going away. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 He will continue and bring the work that He's begun in you to completion. This is a work of God. Um, Again, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 5, it's the fact that you're kept or you're guarded or you're protected by the power of God through faith, which means you will not fall away. And when we're talking about not falling away, Uh, we don't mean that in some sort of an invisible theoretical sense. We mean that in the sense that, I think Scripture means that, and that is you are going to continue to grow in some capacity. Now, are there times where we fall and fail? Yes. Are there times where we struggle? Yes. Does sanctification mean that from the time you're born again to the time that you're uh, uh, dead or glorified, that it's a straight Uh, a straight up uh, trajectory of growth? No, but it does mean that God will continue to grow and mature you both through the word, through the trials and the difficulties that you experience in life and through the fellowship that you have with the saints so that your growth looks a lot more like this, but it's continuing to go uh, toward you looking more like Christ. Now, 1 John 5.4 is helpful as we think about this whole idea of perseverance. First John 5.4 where John says for Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. And so, again, we don't persevere in our own strength. We don't, we don't do any of this in and of ourselves, but it's the, it's the gift of faith that we've received through the power of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that is working in us that continues to push us forward. The truth is, if we just take life as a whole in a fallen world, were it not for the gift of faith that God has given to every one of His children that grows through the sanctification process, every person in this room would have turned their back on God and walked away a long time ago. None of us have the, the, the strength or none of us can, can muster the endurance in and of ourselves to continue to move forward through the difficulties and trials of life. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about the gift that God has given us that has been given in regeneration and has been exercised 
during conversion and then continues to be exercised throughout our time here on earth until the day where faith won't be necessary. Faith will become side. But this is going to be something that continues. Um, again, it doesn't mean we're victorious in everything that we do, but it does mean that we will finish. We don't have to guess about this. We will finish in a, in a state that is complete. Okay? The, he's going to complete the work that he's begun in us. And that's going to be ongoing. So we believe in sanctification and we believe in perseverance. Number eight, we believe in the resurrection of the just and the unjust. We believe in the resurrection of the just and the unjust. Look in um, the Gospel of John chapter 5. The Gospel of John chapter 5. And this is a doctrine that used to just be a given. Um, uh, the resurrection of the uh, the saved and the unsaved, or the just and the unjust. I mean, if you you know if you if you had a Bible and you claimed to believe it, that just used to be be a given. But that's not a given anymore. Um, there, there there are a lot of people, and it's been going on for you know, twenty years plus, uh, who have completely denied. The, uh, the resurrection of the unjust, even the existence of hell itself. Um, and so this is a, this is a distinction that we say we, we hold to because we find it here in scripture. The resurrection of the just, the unjust. Look in John chapter five, verse 28. Jesus says, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth they that have that have done good under the resurrection of life and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation what jesus is teaching here is that one day we call that day the second coming of jesus christ when he returns and those who are dead arise from the grave there's going to be a separation and the separation is going to be between those whom uh, have, have known Christ, loved Christ, been called by Him to life, and, and those who haven't. Those who were the enemies of Christ. Those who rejected Him and hated Him and His Gospel. And those who are resurrected to life just simply means that they will come out of the grave and they will live with Him forever. These are those who will spend eternity in heaven. And those who are resurrected to death, condemnation, damnation as the text says in verse 29, are those who will spend eternity in hell. Now, Again, some people, and we're not going to get too far off on this, but some people have have really tried to adjust this doctrine in the sense that, or, or for the purpose of trying to make um, uh, Jesus and more loving or more palatable to to the world. But here's what the resurrection teaches us, particularly as we think about the just and the unjust: sin must be dealt with. And what Christ did on the cross meant something. Now, you say, well, what does that mean? Well, if the unjust just die and they disintegrate and nothing's ever done, okay, the cross of Christ is greatly diminished. Because God's a holy God. So if nothing happens with the unjust, we also have a problem with God's character. A God who is holy, a God who is righteous, a God who cannot even look upon sin, and a God who one day will punish sin. And He's either done it through the crucifixion of Christ 
or He will do it throughout eternity in hell. And so Matthew 25 would talk about this as well. I'm not going to turn there, but this is the passage where Jesus articulates the separation of the sheep from the goats and the just are brought in and the unjust are cast out into outer darkness. So we believe in the resurrection of the just and the unjust. Number nine, as it relates to the church. Um, Okay, let me... We believe in uh, the local church. If you read the, the article, you'll see the, the, the emphasis there. Now, the primary emphasis in the New Testament is the church as a local body. Okay, that is, that is without question. Now, sometimes people say, well, the primary, we think it's the only. Well, everybody believes that the New Testament speaks of something, speaks of the church in a bigger way, whether or not you're thinking about the church as an institution in Ephesians 5.25, or some invisible church, or uh, the church, the word church used to articulate God's elect from all ages. Uh, Wherever you land on that is not really the point of what I'm saying this morning, the point is, as far as the article goes in, in number nine in our articles of faith, the point is that whenever we read about the church in the New Testament, the overwhelming majority of the times we're reading about a local body of believers. And I'm going to talk about why that was emphasized and why that's important. Um, so, for example... In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. Galatians 1, verse 2, Paul is writing to the churches, plural, in Galatia. 1 Thessalonians 1, 1, the church at Thessalonica. Or Revelation chapters 2 and 3, specific churches there, seven churches of Asia. And so the question may be, why is this distinction or clarification important? And it is important because God's intention for every believer is that we would serve and grow through committing ourselves to a local body of believers. Um, Some have mistakenly adopted the idea that once they're saved, um, that they are part of this invisible church and the local church is unnecessary. Okay, now the part that I want to emphasize here is this idea that the church is unnecessary. Whatever you believe about the invisible church, um, the local church is never spoken of or emphasized in a way that makes it unnecessary. Okay, when, when the New Testament is speaking of the church as it relates to the lives of believers... The New Testament describes a real group of people who really do assemble together, who really do interact with one another, um, who come together for worship in real time, and who intentionally practice real acts of love and fellowship. Um, And so when we're thinking about the church as it relates to us, um, all those one another's aren't just theoretical. They're commitments that we make to one another. And while we may exercise those outside of the local church that we're a part of, our primary responsibility as it relates to those one another's is going to be right here. Um. I love the brothers and sisters in Siberia, but I'm kidding myself if I say that the fulfillment of my one another's is with them through email or something like that. I love the saints in Nicaragua, but I'm kidding myself if I say that's how I'm living that out. Because the truth is, in both scenarios, 
I show up as the guest preacher who is, um, I don't know how else to say this, uh, uh, who's, who's uh, you know, the, the new car smell doesn't wear off before it's time to go. You know what I mean? So, so I'm not saying there can't be any real interaction, but I'm saying if I'm saying that's where I'm primarily doing all that, I'm kidding myself. Um, it's, it's here. Uh, it's with those that I've, I've covenanted with and those that I'm regularly interacting with. And so I don't deny that all of God's people have fellowship in Christ and that there is a connection there. I don't deny that at all. But what I am saying, and I think what Brother Mike and Brother Wallace were emphasizing as they laid this one out, is that your primary commitment is going to be to the body of believers that you've committed yourself to. And that's where this is primarily going to be intentionally lived out. Now then they go on to to say a few other things about this as far as understanding the church. Uh, They say it is a body that is separate, distinct, and independent from the world's institutions. I think what they were trying to get at there was just this uh, separation of church and state. That there, that that we're not. Um, uh, it's not that we're not necessarily, uh, but we're also we're not in an official way making partnerships. But uh, Baptists have historically believed in the freedom of conscience, uh, which means that when it comes to religious matters, you enter into your convictions willingly. We were never for the Crusades from the standpoint that we will take you over, force you into submission, and force you to uh, worship our God the way we say you ought to do that. Uh, that, that was never our job. Uh, we are we're not for, historically, this idea of Christian nationalism. Okay? The idea that we have a nation that's built on uh, some sort of a Christian uh, or church um, structure that's never been because the church while we do assemble in a visible way there's been an invisible work in every single one of our hearts that has brought forth fruit and that has made each of us willing in the day of his power to come and voluntarily say I'm putting myself under the authority of Jesus Christ and under the authority and accountability of his church as we're here so the, the separation here, the distinction, the independent from the world's institutions, would it be great to have a, uh, you know, a, uh, a president that held to the same biblical convictions that, that we do? Well, sure, that would be good. That would be fine. Um, but would that really do much of anything for the kingdom of God? This is a controversial statement, but I would say absolutely not. It might help free us up for a little bit, but the kingdom doesn't grow just because somebody who shares your conviction is in the White House, and, and that's, that's what he's, that's, I think, the re- reference here. Now, secondly, they make this statement that the local church is the only ecclesiastical authority taught in the New Testament. Okay? The local church is the only ecclesiastical, it just means uh, uh, church, authority taught in the New Testament. Now, this is talking about the autonomy of the church. Here's what we mean by that. Um, No other church and no other group of churches has any authority over this assembly in any way. We have fellowship with other churches, and I'm thankful for that. But those churches don't get to say what we do or don't do. And we don't get to say what they do or don't do. Because whenever you look into the, whenever you look at the New Testament, there are no ecclesiastical oversight structures like you see in some denominations. Um, uh, you know, the most obvious one being something like, uh, Catholicism, where, 
you have one guy, the Pope, who's over the whole shebang. And then you have another hierarchy of people who are over other things. But uh, Catholics aren't the only ones who do that. There's other church structures and governments that do that as well. Um, Baptists have always held to the autonomy of the church, at least in theory. There have been uh, plenty who have gotten tangled up in associations and essentially come up with a framework that is not consistent with what we claim. But um, the church, the local church, uh, is the only ecclesiastical authority in the New Testament. So Ripley Primitive Baptist Church as a body is the only earthly spiritual authority over its own members. So to think about that in a, in a couple of examples, uh, if Isaac Guest decided I didn't need to be the pastor at Ripley anymore, he doesn't have the authority to remove me. Only you have the authority to do that. Or if Isaac decided that Taylor needed to be disciplined and removed from the church. He doesn't have the authority to do that. Okay? Only this church has the authority to do that. Okay, so when we're talking about exercising authority, um, it's, it's important to, to give a few nuances here. Number one, this is an authority that must be submitted to willingly. In other words, the church doesn't get to micromanage your life. We don't get to say what kind of shirts and pants you wear. We don't get to pick out the color of your outfit. We don't get to give you a bedtime. We're not in the business of doing all of that. The authority that we exercise has to come with a chapter and verse. We're just saying that we're submitting to the authority of Scripture and we're holding ourselves accountable to one another for that. So that if you see me deviating from that, then you come and you hold me accountable. Okay, so Hebrews 13, we'll give some, some Scriptures for this. Hebrews 13. Verse 7, I'm sorry, verse 17. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Here the, the, the command is to obey and to submit. But the point that I want to make here is that those who have rule over you, and we'll see this in First Peter in just a second, are not called to drive you into submission or pound you into submission somehow. You have to willfully obey. You have to willfully submit. Which means that we all, in order for this to work the way that Christ intended for it to work, we all must have a constant commitment to bringing ourselves under the submission of Scripture. Okay, again, I can't say, um, you know, from now on, I, I just really feel like the best way for us to, uh, to worship without any distraction is that everybody wears all black or something silly like that. Uh, and that sounds like a funny thing, but there are groups who do that. Okay? That's not the kind of authority we have. We can say, brothers and sisters, we expect that if you've committed yourself as a member, you're going to be attending regularly outside of a providential hindrance. We can say that if we, if we are serious about sanctification and everyone who's become a member ought to be serious about sanctification, we're assuming you're serious about sanctification, 
then you ought to take growth in Christ likeness seriously. And so if we see you living in a way that is characterized by habitual sin, we have the authority to come to you, confront you, call you to repentance. And if you don't willfully submit to that, then to exercise church discipline and excommunicate you. Okay, but all that's done, not in a heavy-handed, harsh way, biblically speaking. We're, we're in, a, in, a, in a mutual agreement here. Um, my job is never to try to convince you that you're under the authority of the church. That's just a given as you come in. You've done that yourself. My job and your job is to actually exercise what we said we were going to do, which is what Christ has set up for us. So again, First Peter would, First Peter chapter five would bear that out uh, on the pastor's side of things. This willful submission. First Peter chapter five, verse two: Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage but in samples to the flock. So on the one hand, out of Hebrews 13, 17, those, uh, uh, the church is to obey and submit to the overseer. Okay? That's just the church leadership. And then on this side of things, the pastor, the elder, is to take the oversight, but he's not... Uh, a lord over God's heritage, okay, but an example to the flock. So it's not do what I say, not what I do. And again, it's also not you have to conform yourself to every one of my preferences. Uh, it's to be done in a shepherding way. And so in Matthew 18, if you'll turn there, In Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Now the point here is that if a member gets to the point that they are no longer willing to submit to the church's authority, then they're removed from the church's authority. Okay, This is not something that, again, is done as um, payback or vengeance or um, some sort of uh, uh, punishment on our end. Uh, if somebody has functionally stopped, if, they, if they've ceased from the initial commitment, uh, then you remove them from that. There's no, there's, we're, we're, we don't get to decide how to function in the church. Christ has laid that out for us. And uh, our unity is based around, again, this, this overall we're putting ourselves under the authority of Scripture and in accountability with the church, and we expect the church to hold us accountable to that. Now, all of that being said, this is just a side note, but it's one that's worth making. This is why we do not do the whole deal where you receive members in the handshake kind of a thing. Someone comes along and says, I'm ready to join the church. I'm ready to make a profession of faith. And we say, well, praise the Lord. This is what's happened. Let's get them up. Let's get them dunked. And let's be. You have to enter into this willingly, which means you need to be informed about what it is you're signing up for. And, and we can't assume that just because someone's been sitting on the pew as a child for 10, 15, 20 years even, 
that they've paid close enough attention to what's being said that they understand this. And so if we believe that folks enter into this willingly, then we ought to equip them and we ought to uh, articulate that clearly on the front end before we receive anybody into membership. Again, that's not being too picky. I'm not talking about dragging it out forever, but that's why we've moved away from that and at times folks have asked about it. Church membership is a meaningful thing, not a sentimental thing. And churches that adopt a sentimental view of church membership die. Okay, so we're not shooting for that goal. All right, number 10. Uh, and, and again, this is, this is what's laid out in the Articles of Faith. Some of this is, is sort of a um, little bit repetitive and nuanced. But Article number 10, the church's head is Christ and the church's members govern themselves. So, the church's head is Christ. What does that mean? Well, look in Matthew 28. In Matthew 28, starting in verse 18, Jesus says, uh, well, and Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power or all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you all way, even unto the end of the world. So whenever we say Christ is the head of the church, we're saying that Christ has been given all authority over the church. Okay, That we take our marching orders from Him. So He, here in the Great Commission, all authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. Now, Go therefore and teach all nations. In other words, he's saying this is what you need to be busy doing. This is what the church's role is. And we've said this plenty of times over the, over the years, but really two big things. You're to be evangelizing and you're to be discipling. And this is what you're to be busy doing. Teaching them to observe, verse 20, all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And so, again, to say that Christ is the head over the church is just to say that, um, that the buck stops right here. Okay, if we want to know what we have the authority to do, it's here. We're to be teaching all things, or teaching to observe all things that He's commanded. How are we going to know that? It's right here. And so to say that Christ is head of the church really is synonymous with saying from our part anyway, that we believe in the authority of Scripture. That nothing trumps the authority of Scripture. That we don't get to make up what we do. We don't get to decide for ourselves um, uh, what the standard is going to be. Or uh, we don't get to uh, claim in an authoritative way that something is this or that. Now, when I say that, there are plenty of functional and practical things that um, that go on in a church where things must be done decently and in order and those kinds of things. Uh, but, but where we aren't standing on the authority of Scripture, we have to acknowledge that. Um, the fact that we, through wisdom, have to fill in some of the details and some of the ways that we function is fine. It's not clearly spelled out in Scripture, but we can't make authoritative what's not clearly laid out here. And that's what it means to say Christ is the head of the church. It means what He says goes. Again, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. 
verses 20 through 23. It's in the middle of this prayer that Paul is, is praying. He's talking about the power to usward who believe, verse 20, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And what's being said here? Well, what's being said here is that Jesus Christ has been enthroned as King of kings and Lord of lords, and He is over the church. Okay, our job is to acknowledge that. Our job is to exalt Him, and our job is to submit to Him. Because He's been given a kingdom that doesn't end when this world ends. It's in this world and the next. And so as we... Think about him being the head over the church. Again, our allegiance is first and foremost to Jesus Christ over anything else. The church has to stand there. Doesn't mean, again, like I said earlier, it doesn't mean that there are um, things that we do that aren't helpful, that there are traditions that aren't uh, necessary at times as far as filling in some of the things that we don't uh, uh, have clearly spelled out in Scripture. But what it does mean is that pleasing Christ and holding on to His Word will never take second place to a tradition. It'll never take second place to a preference. And we'll never try to equate the two. Colossians 1.18 this, this, uh, I'm not going to turn there, but that Christ might have the preeminence. When the church, and this is, you know, every, every group has their own problems but, and tendencies. But when the church falls in love with the church over and above Jesus Christ, that's bad news. Christ is the head. He is to have preeminence. And the church functions to put the spotlight on that. So Christ is the head. And then secondly there, and we've talked about this, church members are called to govern themselves. Church members are called to govern themselves. This is one reason why a regenerate church membership is so important. And uh, that goes along with what I said earlier about not receiving members through the handshake or something like that. Um, the, the reality is, when you read the, the epistles, um, as far as church governance and church discipline and those kinds of things, church discipline is just a normal part of a church's existence. But there's nothing special about that. Uh, churches have problems. People make professions of faith sometimes falsely. Sometimes people who have made a profession of faith get caught up in um, habitual enslaving sin and, and they need to be handed over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that the Spirit might be saved in the last day. There, there's all kinds of scenarios why church discipline is necessary. And, and the church members are the ones who are called to be about this kind of business. Um, Another aspect of this, as far as church discipline goes, um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to look there a little more this afternoon, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul is given instructions on how to deal with this man in Corinth who had been having a um, sexual relationship with his father's wife, and he goes into church discipline, this is to be done corporately. It's not just something that the pastor or the leadership does. This is something that's done by the whole body as we come together. Um, 
Again, there's been times where churches have grown neglectful of this for one reason or another. Sometimes people can get sentimental and people's children need to be disciplined and um, uh, the pastor or the body as a whole doesn't want to hurt somebody's feelings and so they just neglect that and and eventually you have uh, people who are on church rolls who haven't you know darkened the door and I don't know how long. Uh, well, here's the reality. If Christ is the head and Christ is the one who we are saying is preeminent, He doesn't give us that option. We don't get to decide what we're going to do and what we're not going to do. The church is actively governing itself to the glory of Christ. We're saying we've willfully submitted ourselves to the authority of Scripture and brought ourselves into accountability to the church. And so we expect that we're going to do it the way that Christ has called us to do it. The goal in church discipline is never, again, to be nasty or vindictive. It's, it's really uh, that the person might be restored eventually. And then the way that the church exercises this self-governing is, uh, we'll look at this this afternoon, but it's, uh, it's guarding the Lord's table out of uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 6-11. Uh, so when we take the Lord's Supper, we're celebrating the fellowship or the communion that we have with Christ and that we have with one another. And that's not just, a, again, a sentimental celebration. We're saying this is a reality. We currently show evidence, and that's being endorsed by those who we're uh, fellowshipping with, that we are in communion with Christ and in communion with one another. And the truth is we're either celebrating a reality or we're rehearsing a lie. Okay, one of the two. And so the way that that table is fenced is, uh, is through church discipline. So we've got two more that we're going to look at this afternoon, uh, both around the, 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 the same lines as, as uh, the church and the Lord's Supper and baptism. A couple of nuances here. Uh, but these are, uh, again, these are the articles of faith. These are what we say are the non-negotiables. These are what we, um, this is what we built our, our unity and understanding of Scripture um, around, or as at least our understanding of Scripture has led us to these points. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we do thank You that You have given us um, Your Word and that You've given us minds that are able to categorize and articulate and understand in ways that can be replicated, ways that can be agreed upon, and ways that we can base our unity uh, around. And so, Father, I pray that You would uh, give clarity as we think about these topics. I pray that You would firm up convictions biblically. I pray, uh, Father, that as we do this, at least for this church, it's not the norm for us to uh, to take Sunday mornings and do this sort of thing, but as we do it, I pray that You would um, bless us uh, to firm our conviction that we stand under Your Word and we assemble here for the glory of our head, Jesus Christ. And we come to worship in spirit and in truth as You've revealed it to us. And we do that without apology. Uh, we pray You would continue to open our eyes to truth, that You would continue to bless us to walk in and to hold to those things that you have revealed. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.